You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 15th of October 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. There's a lot at stake and maybe especially so because this man was a reporter. There's something, you'll be surprised to hear me say that, there's something really terrible and disgusting about that if that were the case. So we're going to have to see. We're going to get to the bottom of it and there will be severe punishment. U.S. President Donald Trump takes a notably tougher line on the disappearance of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi while appearing to take King Salman's word that the Saudi government had nothing to do with it. My guests Somnath Batabayal and Quentin Peel will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the results of the weekend's elections in Bavaria, the UK government's ongoing belief that if it just says Brexit often enough, that'll sort everything out, and Canada's final 48 hours as a country where cannabis is illegal. Legal. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Quentin Peel, Associate Fellow at Chatham House and contributor to the FT, and Somnath Batabayal, Lecturer in Media and Development and International Journalism at SOAS. Welcome both. It is now nearly two weeks since the Saudi journalist and Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi walked into the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. He has not been seen since. The globe-spanning circus attending his disappearance shows no sign of growing any less grotesque. US President Donald Trump has faced faithfully relayed the denials of involvement apparently made by King Salman of Saudi Arabia and dispatched Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to Riyadh. A joint Saudi-Turkish team was due to search the consulate today, though not before a team of cleaners was seen entering the building earlier. Um, Quentin, first of all, are we basically any the wiser? Not a lot, I think. Uh, I would have thought that if he had merely been abducted, then it would have probably taken the some of the sting out of it to say, okay, you know, we've got him. Uh, so I think from that point of view, one must feel that all the time that it is more and more likely that he has been murdered in some way. Um, and, and that's pretty terrifying. I, are we wiser about, we're not wiser about how anybody's going to deal with this problem. Saudi Arabia has been an accident waiting to happen now for years, and particularly since the arrival of this um, very proactive uh, new crown prince on the thing, because he's not very predictable. And I think nobody really knows how to deal with it. Well, as has been pointed out elsewhere about uh, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who is widely assumed now to be the power behind the throne, he does have, uh, how to put it, Somnath, a certain habit of acting without necessarily thinking the potential consequences all the way through. Uh, But this does seem extraordinary. If we assume that Mr Khashoggi's disappearance has been engineered by Saudi Arabia and the Saudis' denials of it are starting to develop a certain half-hearted tone... Um, would they really just not have taken five minutes to think about how this was likely to play out? Did they? I mean, or did they just assume that nobody would notice or care uh, if if you abduct, to put it charitably, a columnist from the Washington Post? Yeah, I I, uh, I think the the reaction uh, they've been caught off by it. International soil, U.S. citizen. Well, I mean, one of the first things to state is that well, U.S. You know, resident rather than citizen, uh, right? Resident, right? Uh, yeah. So. 
one of the first things to point out is that everyone who kind of had this moment of King Salman being a reformer, you know, letting women drive, that will water down quickly. Dissidents of the Saudi regime will not be surprised at all. Since he came last year, there have been more disappearances, more imprisonment of any kind of uh, reaction to the uh, ruling elite there. So it doesn't come as a surprise that this kind of thing happens. It has happened on foreign soil. It has been documented quite well by the Turkish gov government. The uh, two private flights which landed before, the hotel bookings, the arrival of 15 men, the quick disappearance. So, you know, it's a case which has been... We might not be any wiser, but that involvement of very high-level people from Saudi Arabia being involved seems to be quite evident. Uh, Quentin, what did you make of, of President Donald Trump's somewhat curious and contradictory interjection on this? On the one hand, not for the first time, he was quite happy to take the word uh, of a foreign despot that he had absolutely no involvement in it. But also, he's then sort of talking about severe punishment, says he's disgusted by it, and he's sending uh, Mike Pompeo to Riyadh, uh, presumably to give somebody a fairly stern talking to. Well, it's it's a fairly familiar Donald Trump sort of scattergun effect. With, with I mean, the first thing he said was really quite surprising. He said, this is particularly bad because the man was a reporter. Well, he was a columnist. He was an opinionated writer. Um, but for Donald Trump to defend a columnist for the Washington Post, which is a newspaper that he can't stand, was pretty surprising. I mean, and it, then, I mean, I did wonder about that. Maybe it is, and this is possibly being far too charitable to Trump, that maybe he sees all the fake news stuff and his hostility towards the American media as just the knockabout of politics. Nobody's really serious but this actually is. Well, he certainly seems to be pretty passionate about his dislike of the liberal media. I, I was trying to get the week off to an optimistic start. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, now he's sort of going into a, a sort of retreat, trying to give perhaps the king and uh, the royal family a bit of a get-out by saying, you know, when maybe it was rogue elements, which all seems pretty unlikely. And uh, so he, he's sending out what everybody, including the Saudis, must find very difficult to deal with mixed signals. Uh, Somnath, you're quite right in suggesting earlier that the Saudis do seem taken aback by the global backlash, and it has been fairly severe. There's been, obviously, a lot of people have now declined to turn up at their so-called Davos in the Desert conference, although no one's actually sort of told their ambassadors to start packing up yet. But is it possible that the Saudis just took the view that they've been getting away with so much for so long that really what's one more journalist, more or less? You're probably right, and enough journalists get killed around the world. Um, I think probably what several of the Mid uh, Middle Eastern countries perhaps at times think is that oil will trump uh, morality and and good governance, and that's why it happens constantly. You know. Uh, well, well, Trump seemed to suggest as much last week when he much. talked about 110 billion dollars in arms sales versus exactly. one I Washington mean, Post columnist. And, <laughs> True. And even the country we live in, you know, the kind of uh, dealings so. and, and BAE corruption case, it can go on and on our dealings with the Middle East and how, how we have reacted to, to successive governments, successive events like this. So 
it'll be another sadly it'll be another case which in a month's time we'll forget i think that's a very valid point you're making i think that for years we've basically been allowing the saudis to get away with some pretty dubious activities certainly in the way they they treat uh, any dissidents but also in the way they've operated outside the country supporting some very extreme elements in the muslim community and so on uh, after all where did the money come from for Osama bin Laden, Laden yes, you know. And uh, so I think that we've been pulling our punches and pulling our punches, pocketing all the money for selling arms there. And we've now got ourselves into a very deep, dark hole out of which it's going to be difficult even for Donald Trump to climb. Okay, well, let's look now at Germany, specifically at Bavaria, the people of which voted in regional elections yesterday. This went roughly as expected, i.e. badly for the long-ruling Christian Social Union, the Bavarian sister party of Angela Merkel's Christian Democratic Union. The CSU are poised to lose their majority in the Bavarian Landtag, the chief beneficiaries of which seemed poised to be the Green Party, who surged into second place, and the tedious xenophobes of Alternative for Deutschland, who have won their first seats in Bavaria. The CSU will form the next Bavarian government, but they will, of course, now have to build a coalition to do it. Uh, Quentin, we talked about this last week on The Daily, looking ahead to the election. Did anything that actually happened surprise you in the slightest? They did slightly less badly, the CSU, than expected, I think, only by a couple of points. But it's just enough to keep them in power with people who they won't find it too difficult to govern with, because they're, they're going to go into power with this independent bunch, the free voters, the Freie Wähler, uh, who are really just dissidents from the old CSU. So it's going to still be a fairly conservative government. So even though the Greens did actually remarkably well in getting nearly 18% of the vote, double what they got before, they're not going to come into government. So from that point of view, it's slightly less of a shock to the system. But actually, it is a shock because both the CSU's loss of, of more than 10 percentage points of their vote and possibly even more dramatic, the Social Democrats' loss of more than 10% of their vote means that the two parties in the Grand Coalition in, in Berlin have actually been pretty well clobbered by this. So it, it, it makes the Berlin Berlin coalition look pretty flaky. Somnath, is there something weird or interesting possibly in the uh, surge in the green vote? Because there's been this traditional narrative uh, or traditional conventional wisdom over the last few years that conservative parties uh, are losing votes to even more conservative parties uh, over immigration. Whereas here, a lot of the CSU's votes tend to have, seem to have gone further left. Is this possibly the backlash to the backlash? Possibly, but it could also be, you know, um, ba backlash against the anti-immigration narrative, which also mm. has been adapted. So, you know, once the pendulum swings one way, it is bound to swing back. So those are all possibilities. But, you know, I completely agree with Quentin, what Quentin is saying, that while much more was expected, it's not as bad. And also, we have to keep, rem you know, kind of remember that this is, in the larger scheme of things, this is in a particular state. When the general elections happen, mm. most voters go for stability. And whatever else Merkel has done, she has provided a financial stability to Germany over, over a very difficult period. So while, yes, torpedo to Berlin and all the messages going in and out, um, perhaps it's not panic situation in Berlin at this point of time, given that still the same party will be in power. 
What do you think about about that, Quentin? Might Merkel actually be quite relieved because there was there was quite a considerable around the world sort of choppy waters for Merkel narrative last week. Might she actually be thinking, ah, it could have been worse, nothing much has really changed? I think there's an element. One, she actually has always had a secret soft spot for the Greens. She's always rather wanted to do a deal in power where she brings the Christian Democrats together with the Greens. She also does not get on terrifically well with the CSU's <laughs> leader, Mr Seehofer, yeah, does she? That is certainly I mean, it's possible. She, it's possible she might not merely be thinking that wasn't all that bad but actually have like had a quiet chuckle to herself i i, I absolutely agree i mean her relationship with horst seehofer has been poisonous yeah. for the last two years and so from does that this point, reflect in the, this election that, that what's in the grand coalition does it affect do you think the local elections in bavaria uh, well i think that part of the backlash against the csu has been that actually seehofer hasn't won any brownie points for being the the man who was constantly sort of upsetting the grand coalition and the other thing it's very interesting though if you look at come back to that green afd thing for a moment if you look at the way the votes fell out almost possibly even more csu votes went to the greens than went to the far right in the afd so actually there was quite a backlash against the csu trying to be even more anti-immigration than the afd and they lost out because of that now we're going to have another election in two weeks time in hesse which is the cdu merkel's own party and then we might see whether we see the same pattern or whether the cdu is not playing such a hard anti-immigration line, maybe they'll do better than that. Uh, Somnath, we, we should look at uh, the AFD vote as well. This is the first time they, they have got uh, their representatives into the, the Landtag in Bavaria, which I think I'm right in saying means they now uh, sit in 15 uh, of Germany's 16 state houses. Apologies to anybody if I've got that arithmetic slightly wrong, but I'm quietly confident. Um, it would be less than they might have been hoping. Um do we? I, I, we're trying to be optimistic. It's Monday. Um, is is it possible that the AFD have reached a kind of a, a ceiling, if you will? That they've found the limits of their appeal. Well, you know, trying to be optimistic, I hope so, uh, and I hope people will uh, see through them, and uh, you know, it gets worse from here. But also, the larger general politics of Europe, and even world over. We were just chatting about this before in Brazil, uh, in Italy, in Hungary. This is right-wing slant at the moment, which is quite toxic. Um, And it spills over into local elections, I'm sure. And AFD also would be benefiting from it. Um, Where where this leads to, do they kind of, you know, gather more in the next few elections? Will there be a larger presence in other states? Don't know. It's open. You know, we'll see. But what is very positive in this, in a kind of grim scenario, is is the swing towards the Green Party too. I think that the one thing I worry about the AFD is they've made a certain sort of rhetoric, a certain sort of use of language, including some quite deliberate use of language which hasn't been heard since the days of Nazis, um, they've made that more acceptable because there they are on the floor of the Bundestag and now there they're going to be on the floor of the Bavarian uh, Landtag and using language which is actually quite a throwback to the past. So even if I think that they didn't certainly didn't do as well as people uh, did fear that they were going to do they are there in public now. but isn't that now everywhere in america in brazil especially these days in hungary and italy it's a situation everywhere in every parliament the kind of rhetoric we wouldn't have seen this 
10 years ago. The challenge to the middle, the centre ground is huge. OK, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Quentin Peel and Somnath Batabile. Coming up next, at the risk of provoking screaming fits, Brexit, which we're still doing, apparently. The Escapist takes you to places less explored. In this special edition, we hop on a hodgepodge of connecting trains to recreate the story journey of the Orient Express from London to Istanbul. We pass by drive-through liquor stores and small desert towns on an adventurous road trip from New Orleans to Texas and visit Europe's highest airports. For the jet setters among you, we'll show you how to beat jet lag in cities from Hong Kong to LA and reveal our annual travel top 50, highlighting the best in transport and service from the most picturesque rail journey to the airline you'll want to board for your next trip. Perhaps that next flight will deliver you to Cairo or Madeira or the island of Tashima. We'll take you there and we'll tell you where to stay, drink and dine next time you find yourself far from home. We've even put together a wardrobe for wherever your travels may lead you, as well as an eclectic selection of books and songs to keep you entertained on the journey, when you're not too busy looking out the window spotting the places you've yet to visit. The Escapist from the Editors and Bureau of Monocle magazine is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Somnath Batabayal and Quentin Peel. Here in the UK, Prime Minister Theresa May has made a special statement to Parliament on the subject of Brexit. It's not altogether clear why she didn't tell her baffled fellow MPs much they didn't already know. She did, however, insist that a Brexit deal with the EU was still achievable and called for cool, calm heads, an ambition with which one can only wish her luck. Another summit is due to occur later this week. Brexit is now 165 days away. Um, Do we have... I I apologise in advance for this question, but somebody has to ask it, which means someone has to answer it. Do we, 165 days out now, actually have any idea at all what Brexit is going to look like? I think only the Telegraph columnists know this. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You're asking a mere mortal. No. Um, The only reason... I'm not panicking and the Joe public is not panicking is because of our sad belief in capitalism. And we believe that at the end of it, everyone will muddle through and no one will let economies collapse. And somehow something will happen. If that belief wasn't there, we should all be going mad on the streets at the moment. Uh, Quentin, the British are, of course, or pride themselves on being a a nation of muddler-throughers. Do you see a a muddle-throughed muddle throughing you know what i'm saying is such an option actually available because what we're what we're running up against again is northern ireland and while far from an expert myself i rather think that if there was a solution to northern ireland someone would have thought of it by now wouldn't they i think that the the issue is that you can't really muddle through treaty change that you can to a degree i fear that a muddle might still be what they try and get away with. But in my head, I think that it's going to be very difficult because the numbers are not there. The Northern Ireland border, you're absolutely right. This has got to be a legal agreement, a legally enforceable agreement in the withdrawal agreement. And I don't think that 
the 27 other members of the European Union are just going to roll over and say, oh, we'll just take your promises. Nothing's going to happen. Yes, we'll allow you a time-limited deal so that actually suddenly in three years' time, we're back to the same problem of having a border. And when you come down to it, that border is a real problem because that border is not just about trade across the border and people moving across the border. It's a symbol, both of Ireland's division and for the unionists, the symbol, the idea that there could be a border between the rest of the UK and Northern Ireland is also a huge symbol of what they're fighting. So we've got huge amounts of emotion caught up in it. It's almost like nobody thought this whole thing through. Um, Somnath, we we have in the last 72 hours seen, I I think, a number of noteworthily idiotic interjections from various Tory MPs. The former Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson has accused the EU of ruthlessly bullying uh, the United Kingdom for the last two years. I was especially tickled by Andrea Jenkins MP, who tweeted, it's better to go down fighting and honouring the democratic decision of our British people. I don't remember reading that on the bus. Uh, And also um, Andrew Bridgen, splendidly, airily insisted in a radio interview that all English people are entitled to Irish passports. Uh, They only just need, apparently, to turn up um, and ask for one. Uh, Just so we're clear on this to our our passing international readers, that's about as flatly wrong as it's possible to be, and actually, frankly, verging on the somewhat offensive. I mean, you kind of think... (laughs) These are our members of parliament. This is what I they're know. saying. How little attention to detail do they... What do they do? Do they not read their policy papers? Do they have no idea? I mean, this, this, this see, to me, it's a, it's a basic benchmark, Quentin, that members of parliament should know more about this stuff than I do. And, 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 and I really am about the last person who should be placed in charge of negotiating anything between anybody. But it's, uh, it's, it's incredible, isn't it? That this is members of the governing party that are doing this literally don't know this stuff. Andrew, from the very beginning, the the hard Brexit side of this debate did not want to know what the Irish problem was. Um, I can tell you straight away that Mr. Bridgen's comment about Irish citizenship is not correct, because I <laughs> asked the Irish ambassador myself <laughs> whether I would be entitled to Irish citizenship. Are, are, you, are you able to repeat his response to a family audience? <laughs> well, my, I've been married to an Irish woman for more than 40 years, <laughs> but I am not automatically entitled to Irish citizens. I've got to go and live there and pay my taxes. Uh, Somnath, other developments on this front. This Saturday in London, there's due to be a march in favour of the the people's vote, um, the the rather cunningly branded uh, attempt for a do-over of the 2016 referendum. Does that strike you as an idea that is is gathering momentum? I mean, given how little the room is that Prime Minister has to manoeuvre, I mean, there's almost um, the possibility of a either an election mm. uh, or a second referendum does arise, right? If you believe that both sides are actually not bluffing and they will not manage to cobble through a deal, then the chances of a second uh, for election, uh, quick election is definitely on the cards. And as DUP seems to believe that, yes, that might just happen, a no deal and then a second, or um, if not, and it's voted down a second referendum. And how May positions herself uh, 
alongside Brexit if there's a new election, if there's a fresh election call, will be very interesting to see. Okay, well, just finally, before we move along, I, I will do a plug at this point for the, the currently available episode of the Foreign Desk, which broadcast on Saturday, which does take a long, hard look uh, at the idea of reversing Brexit and the potential consequences uh, of doing so. That is available on our website, iTunes, Spotify, and so on. But finally tonight, it is slightly less than 48 hours until Canada becomes the second country after Uruguay to completely legalise recreational cannabis. Once various forms of marijuana will become available from licensed outlets, Canada's government hopes to benefit twice over, saving, obviously, on the incredible amount spent pursuing marijuana users or retailers, and claiming in tax some of the near six billion Canadian dollars spent on black market marijuana last year. The world, and especially the United States, will be paying careful attention. Um, Somnath, Ten years from now, say, if we think that far ahead, will will Canada be thought of or remembered as the, the second among many? It's a tough one. You just said US will be looking carefully. I, I, I wish US is careful about certain <laughs> matters. I don't think US will be much bothered. Um, see, I am anti-prohibition for many reasons. One of the main ones is I think anti-prohibition leads to crime. Wherever there has, sorry, I'm against prohibition. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Yes. Um, uh, simply because if you look, and I'll give you a quick example of India, which I'm familiar with. In Bombay, when there was prohibition, immense amount of gangs started in Bombay. In Gujarat, when there was prohibition, you had the riots. Every time India has had prohibition of any sorts, and this is I'm talking about liquor, you would have gangs and riots and Muslim and Hindu riots. So any kind of prohibition always leads to that. Uh, whether Canada, and there are many questions which will be now, you have a legalization of marijuana, but there'll be many smaller questions asked. How, where can you grow? How can you, you know? So, those things also have to be sorted through, and this will take years. Ten years might even be a very short period of time, you know, to see how this will pan out, whether other countries will um, take it up. So it's something to watch, you know, uh, look at quite closely and see how Canada manages this. But as a positive development and as a, um, you know, one of the wealthier countries, a G7 country, this is um, something, to, something interesting uh, to look out for. Quentin, what will other countries be looking at with this experiment in terms of trying to figure out whether it's a good idea or a bad idea? Because the the theory of it, uh, you know, as, as as Somnath points out, is is I mean, the thing that would most appeal certainly to most governments is saving on some of the incredible amounts of money that get spent pursuing the the growers, retailers, and consumers uh, of marijuana. There are any number of people, certainly in the United States, jails for 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 crimes associated. Uh, with the drug, and it, it, it's hard to argue that that money is being especially well spent. I'm sure in these cash-strapped times that's exactly what they'll be looking at. And secondly, they'll be looking at, hey, and what about taxing it? Yes, Indeed. we might get some more revenues out of that. So I think that there is a and rather... It, and even for health reasons, I guess. Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, I mean, and, it, it, you know, now I think on the other side, they may be looking at one of the problems that they, they think they're going to have in Canada is how do you police the use of cannabis among drivers on the road? How do you tell if, are, yeah. if people are actually stoned out of their minds when they're driving along and actually should have been pulled over? And that may be quite difficult. And if there's any increase in accident rates or that sort of thing, could be a problem. So I think that it will actually, and Canada, after all, is a very open and transparent yeah. country. People are going to be able to tell what's happening. You know, Andrew, the, uh, the 
only industry I think which has really benefited besides uh, you know the illegal black market is the Hollywood the fantastic films have come out of Hollywood because of prohibition and the gangster <laughs> stories that's the only industry which has really done well out of this I mean, are there, I'll put this to you, Quentin, arguments against it, and you'll be familiar with them. There's the idea that if you make it legal, then people will, you know, who may not have consumed it, will consume it. Um, there is the argument, it was certainly, you know, as a somebody who's visited Amsterdam more than once, it struck me that Amsterdam's permissiveness on this turned Amsterdam uh, into rather a magnet for some of the world's most tedious people um, <laughs> in terms of tourism. Uh, are those legitimate concerns? Look, I think at one level it's a pity that we seem to want to need to consume narcotics of one side, one thing or another, which are probably not in the long run very good for us. Here we are trying to stop people smoking and actually turning around and saying, well, maybe we'll allow more people to do this um, with, with a bit of marijuana thrown in. So my sort of slightly Puritan soul says, I wish it hadn't happened, but my my libertarian soul actually is with Sumnath and, and thinking it is probably a good thing on the whole not to try and enforce with massive security something that is actually proving unenforceable. And just a final thought on this, Somnath. This is obviously going to be a policy that is associated for good or ill with Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada. How big a political risk is he taking? You're right. That's a big one. If this goes wrong, it could have long-term ramifications. But keeping with Trudeau's image of a liberal politician, he's kind of you know, reinforcing that. Quentin, is it ultimately going to appear on the credit or debit side of his ledger, do you think? I think probably on the credit side. Um, I do wonder if Donald Trump might be thinking, gosh, I thought he'd been smoking when I met him at the G7. <laughs> but uh, um, I think that probably it will encourage young people to say, hey, he is cool. Well, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Quentin Peel, Somnath Batabayal, thank you both very much for joining us. The show was produced by Daniel Bates, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Martha Libri. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Music next at 1900. It's the Monocle Culture Show. There's more on the day's main stories on The Daily with Emma Nelson at 2200. Midori House returns at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London. I'll be your host for that as well. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening. 